0: Mental imagery. With the development of oral language came the curious discovery that words could be used to generate images in the mind. These mental images, if we reflect on them, are unlike anything we are familiar with in the world. We use the perhaps slightly misleading word image for them because some quasi pictorial mental images do seem like pictures, so much so that we can scan them with closed eyes as though we are looking at a scene in reality. But many of the images we generate in our minds are of things that have no visual analog we can for example evoke the image of a smell because of the importance in oral cultures of preserving information in the memory all cognitive tools were bent to support this socially vital activity so we find myths for example full of vivid and bizarre images as have been evident for a long time the more exotic surprising or strange the image that we form the more memorable it is perhaps i might interrupt this narrative to mention that i have a friend who owns a farm northwest of kalgoorlie in western australia on the west and south sides of the house there is a wide veranda whose floor is made of a red yara wood on which one is expected to walk barefoot a cool pleasure in the warm days there is a lawn of rough grass that falls away down to a small river in the curve of the river around the house a former owner planted seven yacaranda trees on a recent visit we sat on the veranda each late afternoon shaded by the huge canopies of the purple flowered yacarandas, and discussed our day's work to the sound of the pebbled river and the wind through the scented trees. Sorry, I lied. I don't have a friend with a farm northwest of Calgary. I've never been there. But anyone can spend only about two and a half minutes scribbling such an invention, and, if one does it even marginally well, it can generate an image in the reader's mind. Many of our narratives do not generate such images. Compare this paragraph with the preceding one. Those that do generate images are easier to read and to remember. We would be foolish to ignore this power of language in planning how to teach. The kinds of images we might want to evoke will likely be different in each case, but in both cases the power of language to evoke images provides a cognitive tool of considerable power. Perhaps someday I'll drive up to Kalgoorlie and bemusedly search for a cool veranda of wood and a stream behind purple flowering yacarandas. Perhaps you might too. We can often recall images from stories told to us in our earliest years. Curiously, the images we formed as we listened to the stories are often more vivid in our memories than pictures in books. I offer this observation tentatively. It is based only on my informal surveys of around 20 adults over the past couple of years, but the uniform results are suggestive at least, and nearly everyone who sees a movie after having read the original book claims to be disappointed. One of the few exceptions I am aware of is the Lord of the Rings set, and in this case, immense amount of money were spent on simulating the images Tolkien himself had left behind. Sinbad's cave or Mowgli's jungle remain not simply as vivid quasi-pictorial images. They are also repositories of emotions and can evoke immensely powerful nostalgic feelings. That is, the images come along with an emotional coloring, so we can manage to both think and feel in terms of the common images we can evoke in our minds. In teaching, we tend to focus our attention on the content or skills we want the learner to grasp. Often, we will consider the basic concepts we want to communicate. Rarely, in my experience and from my reading of teacher education methods texts, do we reflect on the vivid images that might be evoked by the content we wish to teach. Given the universality of image generation in all oral cultures, it would be prudent to reflect on ways to use this cognitive tool in teaching. We may be sure learners have the power to generate mental images and might easily and pleasurably exercise this power. In the imaginative classroom, we will see much greater invocation of images in all curriculum areas. In teaching about place value or decimalization in math, for example, instead of the usual explanation of the principle and then much drill, practice, and repetition, the teacher will pause in planning the lesson and think what image might help students' imaginative engagement with the topic and their understanding of it. So we can imagine a king who wants to count his army. A clever counselor suggests that the king have five servants pick up ten stones each, then stand behind a table. In front of each servant on the table is a bowl. The army then marches by the end of the table, and the servant at the end puts a stone into his bowl for each soldier who marches past. The army then marches by the end of the table. When the 10 are down, he picks them up and continues putting one into his bowl for each passing soldier. The servant to his left watches him, and each time he picks up his 10 stones, she puts one down. When her 10 are in the bowl, she picks them out and continues putting one stone in the bowl each time the servant to her right picks up his 10 stones. The third servant simply watches the second servant, and each time she picks up her ten stones, he puts one into his bowl. And so it goes, with the servant to the far left having a very dull time, waiting for the servant to his right to pick up her ten stones. After some hours, the servant at the far left has one stone in his bowl, the next servant has three stones in her bowl, the next servant has two stones in his bowl, the next servant has no stones in her bowl, and the servant at the end of the table, exhausted after the hardest day's work, has nine stones in his bowl. The clever counselor is able to tell the king that he has thirteen thousand, 209 soldiers in the army. The drill and practice that follows such an image might involve the students counting themselves or other objects using such a method. It need not displace other techniques for teaching about place value and decimalization, but it does tend to make the topic vividly clear to students and meaningful and imaginatively engaging. Gossip. Gossip has come disparagingly to mean idle chatter or even malicious rumor-mongering, talk of no social importance or seriousness. Gossip, As a result of old and discredited prejudices, was associated generally with the casual talk of women. Talk usually focused on matters of the home and family and local events rather than the important, that is, male, areas of business and politics, generally distinguishing between talk belonging to the private rather than the public world. The word, in English, comes from gobsib, a person related to one in God, as in godparent, and gossip is the kind of talk we might have had with such a person. Anthropologists increasingly recognize in gossip one of the most important sources of human social stability and see it also as perhaps the arena for the first development of language. It is not insignificant that this form of talk about everyday social activity is usually the easiest for us and the form that we, whether male or female, engage in most readily. Gossip narratives are, of course, a kind of story, so this cognitive tool has features in common with the earlier discussion of the story form. But gossip is also different in its informality, its casualness its common lack of formal structuring. I was at a conference recently, and a graduate student from a different university told me that the interesting paper we had just heard by the well-known Professor X was actually her work. She had written an assignment for his course, for which he had given her only a B, and then he had presented her paper almost unchanged as his own. He gave himself away because he quoted Foucault in his paper, as she had done, but included as a part of the supposed Foucault quote her following discussion of it. As we drank our beer, she said she was as angry with herself as with him. She would have stood up and told everyone he had stolen her work. But she worried that no one would believe her. She also worried that she would have to ask him for references for job applications in a few months. And her career could depend on his willingness to write them. Yes, sorry, I'm making all this up too. Though I fear this is an invention with too many real analogs. Was the paragraph easier to read than the one that preceded it? The capacity to gossip entails the narratizing of events coloring our representation of events with appropriately recognized emotion, organizing events by identifying acceptable causal sequences, integrating motives into the causal sequences, interpreting intentions in diverse personalities, and so on. These are, needless to say, enormously sophisticated cognitive capacities. But we can be confident that our students already have developed these tools in significant degree. While we think of gossip as idle or time-wasting, it does, of course, continue to play a vital social role. It represents perhaps the oldest of the cognitive tools of orality. In teaching students who will have the tools of orality in place, then, we will want to reflect on how we might build on those capacities we can see and enjoy vividly in gossip. In the imaginative classroom, we will expect to see much readier use of gossip than is common at present, at least in the classrooms I have seen. All teachers know that if they pause and tell the students about some weird event or accident that they saw on the way to school, attention is immediately enhanced. If the event is well told, one can feel the intensity of interest among the students. The trick is to think about whatever topic one is teaching and introduce items of gossip that will enhance understanding and engage students' imaginations. The lives of mathematicians, scientists, explorers, and writers are chock-full of incidents that are not the usual focus of teaching, but they can enlighten and enliven a great deal of the world students are learning about. It seems too little recognized that good literacy skills rely heavily on the development of good orality skills. While young children live in an oral culture, It is too often the case that their oral cognitive tools are not adequately developed. What many students who are having difficulty with literacy need is a richer orality to build literacy on. Commonly in schools, students who have difficulties reading and writing are seated by themselves in front of a computer or with worksheets, cutting them off from the oral development that they most precisely need. And at home, they may spend hours in front of TV or playing with electronic gadgets, all of which do nothing to develop the cognitive tools that are most needed. Gossip in early childhood is one of the easiest ways to develop the foundations for rich orality, on which we can then build a rich literacy. Good literacy skills rely heavily on the development of good orality skills. Play Endless books and articles deal with the importance of play, so I don't need to repeat the wisdom about its educational uses you will find better expressed elsewhere. Briefly, though, in terms of cognitive tools, play can develop a wide array of symbolic functions. Perhaps most useful, continuing the discussion of gossip, Are those fantasy games children elaborate themselves, taking roles, spinning imaginary worlds, gossiping endlessly as they do so, making contractual arrangements about rules, and just having a really good time? One crucial value of play is the way it releases the mind to reflect back on the world. Again, it is a tool that develops that meta-level of thinking. It helps us to think about the world in a way freed from the constraints that the world's normal forms, behavior, and everyday purposes impose on us. In play, we also learn crucial capacities of self-control. Having taken on a role, we cannot respond except in that role. If we are playing a witch, we have to do evil, while at the same time recognizing it is evil. The subtlety and variety of developments that can take place as a result of giving much opportunity for play need no elaboration here. It is a cognitive tool of immense value in varied forms. In Vygotsky's view, play commonly generates a zone of proximal development. draws the child on to develop higher levels of psychological functioning, improving memory, language, empathy, and reasoning. Vygotsky argued that in play, children function beyond their average abilities as indicated by routine, everyday activities. Play provides a great experimental situation in which children explore the roles of their society and culture. Electronic play, which is working hard to some people's profit to disrupt this immensely valuable negotiated play among children, has been described as fast food for the imagination. Overindulged, which doesn't take much. It has similar effects on the arteries of the imagination. In the imaginative classroom, we will expect to see much more play than is currently common. The kind of play, whether board game, inventive, competitive, exploratory, puzzle-based, or whatever, will depend a lot on the topic being taught. In our experience with imaginative education, we have found that the use of these tools tends to lead to creative situations in the classroom where children take roles in units. So, if teaching about the properties of the air, the children can be divided into groups in which they explore the behavior of radio waves, or fly poop, or muons, or pollen. But in doing so, they take on the role of these entities and have to interact with others appropriately. In the conclusion of the unit, they can construct hugely magnified models of the entities they represent. Or they can play the king and his counselors in learning about place value, some playing the roles of soldiers. Virtually every topic in the curriculum can be conceived in such a way that children can be given roles to play and so explore the topic with greater intensity and engagement. The recognition of mystery. I recognize that there is some risk in including mystery on this list of cognitive tools. Apart from any other reason, it might seem just plain odd to call the recognition of mystery a cognitive tool. There is also a problem with the popular sensationalism that is associated with the use of the word, as in mysteries of the Bermuda Triangle, or mysteries of the ancient world, though perhaps less objectionable is mysteries of nature but I think we can see ways in which a sense of the mystery of things is an important component in the growing of understanding. It is a tool that allows us to recognize that whatever we learn is at best only a tiny fragment of what is to be known. The sense of mystery makes this realization not disabling or depressing, but exciting and enticing, drawing the student toward the vast riches of understanding that remain available. So I don't simply want to dismiss that sensational aspect of mystery, as it might appear also in the headlines of such publications as the National but rather to work out how it may be turned to educational purposes. Mystery enables the mind increasingly to recognize that the world around us, the world we can see and hear and learn how to behave within, is only the immediate surface under which, or behind which, or beyond which, are intellectual riches and experiences barely guessed. Mystery is our sense that there is more than we can see and hear and experience in our environment. By opening our minds to this wider, stranger, and less easily accessible world, we create the first tool for its exploration. I suppose poets have best expressed this drive to go beyond the routine. In Tennyson's words, quote, Yet all experience is an arch throw Gleams that untraveled, World whose margin fades, Forever and forever when I move, To follow knowledge like a sinking star, Beyond the utmost bound of human thought, end quote. From Ulysses. Mind you, Tennyson got it from Dante, whose Ulysses described his desire to, Quote, Shrink not from new experience, but sailing still against the setting sun. Seek we new worlds where man has never won before us. Ponder your proud destinies. Born were ye not like brutes for swinish ease, but virtue and high knowledge to pursue. Quote. From Inferno. At one level, the sense of mystery is a part of developing intellectual humility. One of the best known expressions of this came from, perhaps, the greatest scientific mind of all time, Sir Isaac Newton, 1642-1727. to 1727 wrote to his nephew that while people might think him so knowledgeable as a result of his work in mathematics, optics, physics, and astronomy, and his discovery of the law of gravitation, the formulation of the basic laws of motion, the development of the calculus, and the analysis of the nature of white light, and so on, he himself took the opposing view, quote, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than before, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Well, I've pulled in some heavy lifters to help me describe this tool. Drawing on poets indicates something of the difficulty of characterizing the capacity to recognize the mystery of things as a cognitive tool. But I hope it will become clearer from the examples to come. It seems fair to say that behind every explanation lies a mystery. It seems so fair to say it that I'm sure someone must already have done so. In the imaginative classroom, we will expect to see much greater emphasis on mysteries. These can indeed involve the more sensational kinds trumpeted by popular papers but should also move constantly in the direction of the deeper mysteries beyond our range of knowledge. Even with simple counting, the idea of infinity can be brought forward for young children to butt their heads against. When learning about prime numbers, students can be invited to find some pattern in the appearance of primes, and then can be told that this is one of the most persistent puzzles mathematicians have grappled with unsuccessfully for centuries. Punctuation, such as the ingenious comma, can lead to students being invited not just to learn the rules, but to wonder about how these various squiggles, make the page more hospitable to the eye, and they could be invited to invent new punctuation marks that would add to the courtesy that is the heart punctuation. These different ways of seeing the familiar constantly open up mysteries surrounding our small and insecure space of knowledge. Embryonic Tools of Literacy Increasingly, as students become competent in using the general toolkit of language in its many forms, and become increasingly competent readers and writers, teachers might want to begin incorporating into their planning and teaching some of the cognitive tools of the literacy toolkit, especially the use of the extremes of experience, the limits of reality, and the adventures of heroes, and the sense of wonder drawn from narrative understanding in the literate eye. In the imaginative classroom, we can expect a recognition of the changes that are going on in students' understanding with the growth of literacy. I explore these in chapter 2, but at a general level, it is clear that the shift to literacy reflects also a shift from a dominance of the ear to the eye in gathering information. Certain activities can facilitate this shift and also show students how literacy can give new powers. One of the most basic of these activities can be demonstrated through the making and manipulation of lists and of flowcharts, diagrams, and so on. These are tools unavailable in oral societies, except in restricted forms. But students becoming literate can get great pleasure and imaginative stimulation from making lists and manipulating them. They might be invited, for example, to use an atlas and make a list of rivers. Then they can be asked to classify them in tables that might include such categories as those that are more than 500 miles long, those that flow through more than one country, those that are named after a person, and so on. Or they might make a list of the sports they know and then classify them into sublists of those in which we kick a ball, those in which we hit a ball with something those in which the goal is off the ground, those we play indoors, those in which more than two teams compete, those that can only be played by two people, and so on. In the overview near the beginning of this chapter, I introduced the cognitive tools I would be telling you about. Then I told you about them. So now it's time to tell you what I told you. The underlying theory is that we can make the best sense of education and students' learning if we think of these processes in terms of the cognitive tools students have to learn with. In this chapter, I have made a kind of inventory of some of the chief tools young children will normally have available to make sense of the curriculum. Some of these will already be familiar, in one form or another, such as the use of stories or humor, but as a set, they will perhaps seem a little unusual. This is not the way teachers have been encouraged to think of children's learning, and these are not the focus of much attention when it comes to describing methods of planning and teaching in pre-service education programs. Despite their unfamiliarity, I hope that even from a brief description of each, it may be evident how some of them can be used for educational purposes. As you read, I hope it will become increasingly clear that in fact, focusing on these kinds of cognitive tools is precisely what's needed to engage students' imaginations in learning. The tools are not to be seen as some kinds of hooks or motivators. They are clues to help solve the problem of how to make knowledge about the world meaningful to the students. Engaging the imagination is not a sugar-coated adjunct to learning. It is the very heart of learning it is what brings meaning and sense and context and understanding to the knowledge we wish to teach so what i've told you about stories metaphors binary opposites rhyme and rhythm and pattern jokes and humor mental imagery gossip play and mystery are among the first important keys to some of those doors to our culture's riches a set of auxiliary tools that fit onto the great tool of language itself we will not simply be exploiting these tools we will be exercising and developing them at the same time, because these are the tools of our early understanding. What remains is to show how focusing on such characteristics of students' minds can actually lead to new and effective ways of planning and teaching. My initial plan had been to describe the sets of cognitive tools that come with language, then those that come with literacy, then those that come with theoretic thinking, and then give examples. But increasingly, it seems like too long a haul through descriptions of sets of cognitive tools before getting to some account of how the tools might be used. So I thought I'd add an in-between chapter, after each descriptive chapter in order to give some flavor of how the tools might be used to shape teaching and learning. In chapter 2, I look at a new set of cognitive tools that are a part of Literacy's toolkit. The set presented so far don't simply go away as the new ones develop, however. They blend in, in some cases, and continue to develop in distinctive ways in others. Stories for example, may change into more sophisticated narratives, but simpler stories continue to engage more sophisticated students and adults the capacities for metaphor and mental imagery continue to develop. The capacities for metaphor and mental imagery continue to develop. I don't pursue some of these in much detail, but I just want to note that the cognitive tools and their associated capacities that people learn early in life are not abandoned with the acquisition of additional tools. Neither are they unchanged by further growth, but they also remain available in their simpler forms as well. A bit complicated, but that's the trouble with being human. While simple theories of development are attractive, It's hard to take them seriously when one looks at the messy complexity of the world and its people.